We are in Greeley, Colorado, and we are going to go on a road trip. And Greeley, Colorado is a really interesting place. When you're in, I guess you could call it the, the city center, it looks like your normal small town, but you know you're in an agricultural area because you can smell it in the air. <laughs> you can smell the cattle in the air. Not all the time, but often enough to remind you, this is farm country. When you drive through an area like this, you don't see the impact of drought right away. But farms here in Greeley and across the West are struggling to access enough rain, enough water to feed their crops. And in some cases it's changing what they actually grow. And that has an impact on all of us because it means <laughs> what ends up in our stores and on our plates, that can change too. Oh, and look, a llama. So as we're driving, you see fields that have clearly been irrigated. They're, they're green, they're lush, the irrigation machinery is there. Um, these are those big machines, they look like, I don't know, kind of like a long spider leg on wheels. And you can see the spouts where they sprinkle water onto the crops. But then there are other areas that are either less developed and they're, they're brown. And you can see the, the prairie sort of peeking through uh, this prairie grass and natural landscape. But in the places where you can just see the ground, the ground is dry. It's dry and dusty. And that's where you really see the evidence of the drought. This week, we brought you our Water Week series from our partner station, KUNC Public Radio in Greeley, Colorado. Throughout the series, we've discussed how the climate crisis is changing our relationship with water. And for our last installment, we're going to talk about what happens when the water isn't there. The western U.S. is in the middle of a 22-year-long mega drought, and farmers here are facing tough decisions over how to keep us fed with less irrigation. In this episode, we discuss how drought is changing the way we think about agriculture. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us from southwestern Colorado to talk about what she's seeing is Elena Miller-Turkyle. She's a farmer and rancher on Cactus Hill Farm, which has been in her family for six generations. Elena, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And with me in studio here in Greeley is Alex Hager. He's KUNC's water reporter. Alex, it's great to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Elena, tell us about your ranch. What are you raising? So we are a certified organic ranch farm. We raise um, organic hay, alfalfa hay. We also do some grain crops, malt barley, uh, wheat, all through organic um, suppliers in Colorado. And then our big business, my personal business, is uh, a sheep ranch. So we raise for meat and for fiber wool. We raise uh, a bunch of, of different breeds of sheep. How do you irrigate your crops right now? 
So we actually use some of the oldest water rights in Colorado. The acequia systems were dug by the my ancestors, the Hispanos, um, who came in during the 1850s, 1860s into Colorado. And basically, it's an open ditch system, uh, runs from the river, from the Alamosa River, and serves uh, the farms around the area. Alex, the western U.S. has been in a drought for more than two decades as climate change makes our world hotter and drier. Walk us through what led to this. There is always going to be some ebb and flow of wet years and dry years, but right now we are in the worst drought that this region has seen in more than a thousand years. And that is really straining the Colorado River, which supplies 40 million people from Wyoming down through Mexico. And really that is because there is an abnormally dry period, but also climate change is accelerating how dry that period is, how long it's dry and how dry each year is. So warming temperatures are sort of the the leading number here. And that means that there's sometimes less precipitation falling. It means that the precipitation that does fall, largely in the form of snow, which is where the Colorado River gets the bulk of its water, that snow is running off earlier. So that natural reservoir of snowpack that hangs out up in the mountains and slowly trickles down, it's trickling down faster to the places where humans divert and collect it. And it also means that soil is drier. It acts like a sponge and soaks up that water before it gets down to rivers and reservoirs. So... Like I said, there is some normal dry year, wet year, but right now this is a long period of dry years that is being accelerated and made more severe by climate change. Elena, how has the drought changed the way you farm and the way you think about your water use? Yeah, I think like one of the neat things about our farm being so historical is we have these stories to the generations of what farming used to be like, because I think even though we are seeing more changes now, these changes have already been happening for the last few years just because of the long drought we've been in. So um, my great grandfather told me, or he didn't tell me because he passed away before I was born, but he told me that you used to be able to go out on the prairie and there would be grass as high as the horse's stomach, which now that's pretty much non-usable land. It's um, it's just Chico, um, all that grows out there is sagebrush. And I'm sorry, my, my kid's here with me. Um, no, you're a working and, mom. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it's a kind of the ecosystem. We've already seen a lot of changes um, in the past years. Like I've seen the farm radically change. I mean, we, we have about 400 acres and we've just had to kind of a lot of places are out of production. We're only farming about half of the farm. Um, and these are supposed to be one of the best water rights in Colorado because they're some of the oldest water rights in Colorado. So we definitely see some changes. There are years where even though we have one of the best water rights where we will be curtailed just because there isn't the water. And so we do have to lose a crop or sacrifice a crop just because we don't have the water to keep it going. And then I think the big changes that we do see as well are just like, it is taking more water to keep everything growing. We do see more pests, the warmer winters, um, the hotter summers. Those are really a big problem for, for certain things, parasites for sheep, and then also pests on the crops. So um, yeah, it's been, I'm, I think that if you came to our area, you would see the changes that have happened over the years as farms have really um, disappeared because of water changes, but then also the climate has changed and people are losing their, their ability to irrigate and to keep their crops growing. Uh, out here, if you don't have water, you don't have anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alex, uh, Elena mentioned water rights. How do water rights work in Colorado? Well, in Colorado, as with much of the rest of the Colorado River Basin, which includes uh, seven states throughout the Southwest, um, it's built on this system of prior appropriation. So it's not necessarily who can kind of justify the best use for the water, but it's who was using it first. So, you know, we heard Elena talking about the oldest water rights having, having priority there. Um, and, you know, as less water is flowing through through the river that gets allocated to farms and households and cities throughout the region, we're going to see, you know, 
shortages cause cutbacks that will hit the last people in line. So we saw the first round of those last summer. It's likely that we'll see another round of those this summer. Now, the impacts of those are not going to be felt too severely because a lot of regions that know they are going to be the first to lose their water have done a lot to secure some backup supplies and really kind of mitigate the impacts for the next five to 15 years. But realistically, water rights, which are governed by this hundred year old set of laws in the Colorado River Basin, mean that, uh, you know, the last people in line will be the first to lose their access to water. Elena, do you feel like you can cut back or conserve any more water? Um, I think, well, we've actually done a lot. Um, we've put our water into pipelines and we've done a lot to help with delivery losses because that's something we have a lot of, you know, it's an arid desert soil. Um, but I think there's actually like, and this is this really interesting thing and I won't go too much into it, but as surface water users, as we become more efficient, efficient, I'm going to put it in quotes simply because that's actually less water that goes into the groundwater, which is later used by other farmers who pump from the wells. So it's kind of a complicated thing that we are seeing that our aquifers are really suffering through um, extensive water use. And then that change in water use from the surface users has really changed how much recharge is going back into the ground. And so um, it is a tough situation. We, of course, we, we, ha- we have a situation where you know, if we don't use the water, it's going to stay in the river. And we are working with some different programs to try to keep the river wet, um, to try to use some non-conventional water transfers to basically help to keep that river having some water in it. So it's not just all going to the farm. So we are working on those sorts of things, um, also on our soil health and stuff to try to um, help our water retention, but then also enhance the ecosystem of our river without hopefully sacrificing, you know, the agricultural stability of our farm. What do you want people who aren't farmers, but certainly consume what farmers produce to remember as we we talk about cutting back water rights for agriculture? So I think that it's it's always that I always remind people that it's not just it's it's like if you eat food and you wear clothing, then you need farmers. And so I think to have that idea that somehow we're separate, that cities in the country are are in a combative relationship or that we're not on the same team, it's just not realistic. I think we need to start working together to see that, you know, having a sustainable food system, having a sustainable way of supplying our, our clothing and our basic needs through agriculture is really, really important. And so if we can maybe work together on that, I feel like there's some really creative ideas out there. Um, we were part of one where basically we were able to help a, a city come up with some water that they needed, but like to maintain the farm, we did it in this really neat way. So I think there are solutions, but I think as long as there's that relationship of it's us versus them, it's our water versus their water, especially out here in the West, um, we're not going to win. I mean, we need to maintain agriculture. Everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs to wear clothing. And and how do we do that in a real in a real sense, you know, acknowledging that cities also need water, um, but how do we work together on that? And I think that having that bigger picture of we're not trying to fight over a limited resource. We're on the same team. <laughs> we're all trying to get this country, you know, into the into the future in a beautiful way. So that's Elena Miller Kyle. She raises sheep. She raises sheep rather and grows hay on Cactus Hill Farm in Lahara, Colorado. Elena, it was great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was an honor. Well, joining us now to talk about what Colorado is doing to support its farmers is Colorado's Commissioner of Agriculture, Kate Greenberg. Commissioner Greenberg, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me, Jen. And joining us from Tucson, Arizona, is Michael Kotutua Johnson. He's a Hopi tribal member and a traditional farmer. He's also the assistant specialist of the Indigenous Resilience Center at the University of Arizona. Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. 
Michael, we heard from a farmer in southern Colorado about how the drought is impacting her farm. How are you seeing it play out in Arizona? It's it's having a pretty big effect. You know, we have this two to five, uh, four million um, million acre feet drawback, and so uh, Arizona is, of course, one of those states that has to come up with a plan to to help with that. Uh, but agriculture out here is, you know, that we're trying to find different uh, substitutes for the current uh, things that we're growing. We grow a lot of alfalfa and cotton down in southern Arizona. At Hopi, where I'm from, uh, we don't use irrigation. We've never used irrigation. We have over a two uh, three thousand year history of not using irrigation. So it's a little different up north than it is down south. <laughs> Right, you practice Hopi dry farming. What is that exactly? Well, it's basically, um, basically I call it faith-based farming. Everything we do is based upon faith, but uh, we, we've been raising crops up in the desert southwest up there for over 3,000 years, and so we don't use any irrigation whatsoever. In fact, all of our uh, techniques are designed to preserve soil moisture, everything from our spacing to our clumping of plants uh, to just the varieties themselves. Is part of that practice also about uh, conserving water when we compare it to industrial farms? Oh, yes, it is. I mean, for example, like I said, we don't irrigate. You know, our, our spacing between our plants is about three paces, almost like six feet. And so, uh, and our planting depths are anywhere from six inches to, to 18 inches uh, during a dry year. And so we're able to figure out, you know, just by the, the coverage that we see on the ground, the, the biological indicators, are those things, those plants that grow with an abundant amount of moisture, we'll be able to judge those in the springtime, whether we're going to have a drought or not. And so we'll adjust our planting depths and our spacing accordingly. Commissioner Greenberg, agriculture accounts for 80% of water use in the Colorado River Basin. Climate change is bringing on a water crisis, and the federal government is forcing states to, to cut water use. The negotiations are ongoing, but do you think those cuts should include agriculture? Well, let me first say that the farmers that you have on this show, Mike and Elena, are two of the people I've learned so much from about what it means to adapt, to build resilience, and to think about agriculture, not just this season or next but really through the generations. And that's what we're in. We're in a generational moment. So all of us are at the table. All of us have a stake in this. At at the Colorado Department of Agriculture, we are here to learn from our farmers and then take what we learn and see how we can help build resilience. So when it comes to the cuts that we're facing here in the Colorado River system, agriculture has been adapting for generations. And we've seen that through technology, through crop types, through practices around soil health. And how do we really build regenerative agriculture into our system in a way that allows our farmers and ranchers to be profitable in a changing future? So we are at the table. We are looking at things that we can do from the farm level, from the ranch level, from our irrigation delivery systems, how we support our dryland farmers as well uh, who face their own water challenges. But of course, we also know we are not alone in this and we all have to be at the table to find solutions for the future. So agriculture, people working in that sector have been been working on this issue for a while. But but do you think the cuts that are being negotiated right now that they should include the agriculture sector as well? Well, I think what we're up against a really tough, a tough situation. Two to four million acre feet in the system is significant. Um, here in the upper basin, which includes Colorado, we rely on hydrology. Um, so that means that the water that we send downriver, you know, it comes from our snowpack. It's really dependent upon what nature offers us. Um, that said, we have already seen cuts in the upper basin. Agriculture has felt that. Um, we, I don't think, are under the impression that it's going to get easier. 
we know there will be future strains. Um, we feel that already. And of course, that's kind of what we're, we're dealing with in the system and, and other systems as well. Um, so while we feel those cuts, while we know that's something that agriculture has faced and will continue to face, we think there are creative solutions. Elena mentioned some of this, ways it's not uh, either or or an us or them, but how do we share water in new ways? How do we make sure we're looking at ecosystem function and food production while meeting the needs of our cities? There's a lot of creative solutions that are being developed and, and deployed out in the field. And I think that's the main thing. It's not us or them. It's really how do we approach this together? Well, as we're hearing with the drought, many farmers have no choice but to use less water. Commissioner Greenberg, you mentioned regenerative farming. What is that exactly? Well, the, the word regenerative, you know, this is something I go back to actually Mike, who's on the phone with us, who I've worked with for a long time and has taught me a lot about the indigenous foundation of agriculture in this country. So regenerative is a term that's being used now, but it's really about going back to practices that have been practiced for centuries and for generations. And, and farmers like, like Mike have been carrying on those traditions. What we're seeing now is that effort at a larger scale. So regenerative agriculture is thinking about how do we put back more into the system as as we harvest. So you harvest, you take nutrients out. So how do we put nutrients back in? You harvest, you take water out. How do you bring water back in? Really repairing those cycles. And we have farmers and ranchers at all scales here in Colorado from two acres to 2,000 or to even more than that on the range who are thinking about this concept. How do we grow food and repair ecosystems at the same time? They don't have to be mutually exclusive. The other component to that as we think about soil health, we think about rotational grazing, cover cropping, those are just a few tools in the toolbox. We also have to think about markets and how do we make sure the companies that we work with, the companies that buy food from our farmers and ranchers are in the, in, at the table with us to help develop this, these practices. You know, farmers are always adapting. Farmers and ranchers are on the front lines of drought and of climate change and always have been. They, they live by the weather. They live by the soil moisture. And so as, as they're developing these new practices, there's inherently risk, but there's also innovation. And we want to make sure that there's a bottom line to support the stewardship practices that farmers and ranchers advance every single day. And that work that they're doing in the field is so integral to our creativity and innovation that's going to allow all of us to learn how to adapt to extended drought and climate change. Well, Alex, part of the reason we're having this conversation is because of the dangerously low water levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead. In addition to supplying much of the Southwest's water, dams on each reservoir generate hydroelectric power that reaches millions of people. What do low water levels mean for that? Well, in the very immediate term, hydropower generation, especially at the Glen Canyon Dam on Lake Powell, has been one of the major reasons that we have seen policies to have emergency releases to top up those reservoirs. So there's, you know, 5 million retail power customers across six states that depend on electricity from those dams. Um, you know, the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority is one of the, the biggest consumers uh, in that region. Um, you know, that, that utility gets about 40% of its electricity from dams on the upper Colorado. And it's not going to mean the end of power if water dips too low to pass through those hydropower turbines, but it's going to make water or it's going to make power more expensive for those 5 million people who depend on it. And 
you know, that is why we're seeing a lot of releases. It's why we're seeing a lot of policymakers have to scramble to send water from other parts of the region to those reservoirs. Well, and Michael, what impact would this have on tribal communities? Well, we have 53 tribes basically that are... um that are buying uh, hydropower from Western Area Power Administration. And so, uh, as you know, you know, if, I don't know if you read the news, but, you know, a lot of the tribal communities um, are, aren't really well off financially, especially the, la- the large big land-based tribes. In fact, you know, up on, the res- up on the Navajo Reservation, they have a really problem with access to water. But so, you know, when you raise the price on anything, then you have to figure out, well, who's going to pay for that? You know, uh, we're, held by trust in, we're held by trust by the United States of America. And so, uh, we need to figure out ways to help subsidize some of those costs because we just simply don't have the the monetary value to to, to afford higher electrical prices. Uh, we're already struggling at uh, we're already struggling uh, on other issues also. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember, you can also be part of future conversations. Just download the One A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. Alex, there's a bit of a a use it or lose it policy around water rights in Colorado. How exactly does that work? Yeah, it's part of kind of laws going back to the 1800s. And in a very practical sense, it's a way for governments to keep track of who is using the water just to make sure that someone with a very old water right doesn't suddenly turn it on and, you know, upend their expectations of where they should be sending that water. Um, This is kind of part of this idea that a lot of governance of Western water goes back, you know, nearly a century. And a lot of those rules are starting to see kind of the idea of challenge. So at its heart, we haven't really upended Western water law. We haven't really upended this uh, century old document that governs how water is allocated throughout the region. But as the drought is completely flipping precedent on its head for how much is available, and as our society develops in a way that really changes how much water we need to keep taps flowing in homes and crops growing in fields, there are little ways that some of those laws are getting tweaked along the way, little ways that the way we allocate water is changing. Can you give us an example? Uh, well, you know, right now, the, the Colorado River Compact is that document that I've been sort of talking about. It is seeing its 100-year anniversary right now. Um, and some of the core tenets of that, like prior appropriation, and that's this idea that, um, you know, the, the first people to use water are the ones who will have the uh, kind of most untouchable rights to use it in perpetuity. Uh, some of those core tenets are staying as part of Western water law. But some of the smaller ways that, uh, you know, we allocate water from one reservoir to another, from one region to another, the quantity of water that gets sent uh, to to one state or another, that is being tweaked by this patchwork of kind of band-aid agreements that are helping keep the reservoirs full enough to generate hydropower and helping keep enough water, you know, flowing through dams to make sure that states can meet their legal obligations to one another. Commissioner Greenberg, when we think about that use it or, or lose it policy, it would seem to disincentivize water conservation. If a farmer saves more water this year, they may not have the right to access enough water next year. How does that fit with the current need to conserve as much water as possible? Well, I, you know, I think it's an important point for us to to definitely dive into because as farmers and ranchers, you know, producers have to balance the investments they've made you know, often through generations in their farm business, which includes their water rights, with a deep ethos of conservation. 
And of course, the pressure now to conserve is greater than I think we've felt in a long, long time. So that's a, that's a tough tension to hold and puts farmers and ranchers in a very tough position a lot of the times uh, to, uh, as to how to proceed and how to continue to manage a business um, with water rights that are very, very precious in the West, um, that are the foundation of a profitable business for the irrigated producers, uh, but also where conservation is becoming more and more of not just an option, but a requirement requirement for us in the West. And we have examples of farmers and ranchers who are thinking very creatively around this front, around how do we do both, um, use less water, conserve more water, help out the entire system, not just an individual farmer ranch, but also that individual farm and ranch, but also allow that farmer rancher to stay in business. And that's where some of the creative solutions that are um, being looked at both here in Colorado, the uh, solutions that have been for put forward by the Upper Colorado River Commission uh, for the Upper Basin around sort of system-wide solutions. They're not easy, uh, but they have farmers and ranchers at the table who are really thinking about what is that nexus of profitability and conservation for the future. Michael, how is the Indigenous Resilience Center trying to prepare tribal communities for the impacts of climate change? Well, right now we're kind of going out and seeing what the tribes basically need. Um, a lot of them uh, is just the lack of capital, uh, but it's also just uh, coming up with new ideas to help um, mitigate some of the climate change factors. For example, down here in uh, southern Arizona, or actually in Arizona, 60% of producers in Arizona are Native American. And so uh, what we're talking about climate change is having a, a big impact on those folks. And so uh, we're trying to just educate the, 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 the Native farmer producer on, on maybe a more efficient way in some cases, especially those ones who are involved in commodity crops. And we're trying to come up with alternatives, uh, different types of crops in order for them to be also successful uh, economically, but also successful in, in keeping their own valleys and things like that. And what lessons would you like non-Indigenous farmers to take away from your farming practices, Michael? You know, I, honestly, I think, you know, our, 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 when we talk about regenerative agriculture, you know, it's, it's still based in the systematic thing. And, and um, I came up with a definition that kind of clears that a little bit. And I'm saying that indigenous agriculture is the process of incorporating indigenous place-based ways of knowing and land use management schemes adapted for survival, which are supported by culture, belief systems, and community incorporated over millennia. And for me, I think it's just more about, you know, the value we put behind things. I'm not saying that the non-Indigenous farmer doesn't have any value behind things, but our whole system is supported by our cultural beliefs and our ties to the land for centuries. And so I just wish that people could understand that just a little bit more so that we don't look at water as strictly a commodity or an economic driver, but we put a little bit more value on it behind than what it is currently being addressed as. Now, Commissioner Greenberg, in June, Colorado announced a $1.9 million investment into drought resilience projects across the state. What, what projects are being funded? So this was actually part of our, our stimulus package that we put forward to the legislature. The $1.9 million for drought resilience was on top of dollars for soil health, for renewable energy development on farms and ranches. We've also been able to create a beginning farmer and rancher loan program. So we're gonna be doing innovative financing for future generations. So all that again plays into the system-wide thinking about how do we build our you know resilient and adaptive agriculture for the future. 
with those the 1.9 million in grants, we looked across the state at where uh, that kind of money, which depending on what you're doing is not a whole lot of money, especially if you're looking at agricultural infrastructure, but where that, that kind of money could be the most beneficial. So we worked with livestock organizations, cropping organizations um, to really get a, a sense of where a, a investment would be most beneficial. So we've put money into research. Uh, we've put money into, uh, for example, a pilot project around virtual fencing. This is some a technology that's emerging in the livestock industry where instead of having to go out and actually, you know, you know, pull wire and, and deal with physical infrastructure out in rangeland um, or anywhere you graze cattle, you can actually move cattle based on, uh, you know, essentially uh, virtual technology. And that can help managers manage their livestock, again, rotational grazing and other tools to advance soil health or protect sensitive areas. Um, we've also been looking at infrastructure, talking a lot about aging infrastructure. Of course, 1.9 million can't fix all of our problems, but we have put some of those dollars into infrastructure. Um, very, very excited about the, the federal dollars that are on the table right now for uh, agriculture in the West. We've really got to be thinking about agricultural infrastructure as infrastructure at large. We've got aging systems. We've got um, places where open ditches would be better suited to piping, not necessarily everywhere, per Elena's point earlier. It's a much more complicated system when you start uh, making changes and, and putting water in pipes, but sometimes that efficiency is what we need, and that mm -hmm. takes investment from an infrastructure uh, vantage point, both uh, sort of at the system level and the farm delivery level. So that's a lot of where we're thinking um, and, and trying to drive resources, doing what we can at the state level overall. We We've been able to generate $96 million in recovery funds through the state of Colorado with the support of our governor and our legislature. But of course, the dollars we see at the federal level are integral to be able to do the work that we need to do here in Colorado and across the Colorado River Basin. Alex, I want to make sure we get to this question, and it's one we get a lot when we talk about drought in the West. Uh, Jeff tweeted, we pump oil from side to side of the country all the time. Why don't we share our water the same way? And tweet, and Stephen tweeted, we have an interstate system for traffic permitting millions of Americans to travel, thousands traveling across the country. Why don't we have the same for water to enable water to be sent from areas of flooding to arid areas that need water? That is a fair question, and it is one I hear all the time. And it is one that the federal government themselves have considered. The main uh, you know, authority for water in the West, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, did a study on this. And what boils down to is the fact that it is very expensive to move water. Uh, water is very heavy, and when you are moving it against the direction of gravity, uh, it just takes a lot of energy, and it's a very expensive energy to move water across those distances. Um, and it speaks to this idea that there are generally cheaper alternatives than something kind of that drastic. So as we are seeing uh, cities and farms and states start to grapple with how they are going to prop up that supply, how they might add water to this strained system, there are a lot of alternatives that will probably make more sense before a big cross-country pipeline, whether that be desalinating water from the ocean, whether that be recycling wastewater and reintroducing it to the system, or realistically just taking serious conservation measures on cities and farms across the region to stretch out the supply that we do have. And all of those are going to play a small role. Not any one of those is going to be the silver bullet to turn this drought around, but we should expect that the future will include a little bit more of all of those practices as states kind of turn 
every page to try to find a little bit more water. And just in a sentence or two, Alex, next week is a big deadline for states to submit plans to cut water use to the Department of Reclamation, which is tasked with managing the Colorado River. What do you expect to see in those plans? We expect to see states really challenged to find water that is uh, in a a greater quantity than they've ever been asked to conserve. And it will be a big test of the federal government's authority to tell states, you know, to conserve or we'll do it for you. That's KUNC water reporter Alex Hager. Also with us today, Hopi tribal member and farmer Michael Kotutua-Johnson. He's also the assistant specialist of the Indigenous Resilience Center at the University of Arizona and Colorado's Commissioner of Agriculture, Kate Greenberg. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.